Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. Each week, we make this show to celebrate radio in all of its variety all around the world. There's 100 years of radio history for us to dig into, and so much of it is underground. Like college radio, it's always been with us, contributing to the collective culture, and on Radio Survivor, we have a passion for learning about it and sharing it with you. In every place on Earth, from Zimbabwe to Antarctica, there are people making radio for each other. And Radio Survivor brings you there via the magic of sound and broadcast and people's stories. From Pirate Radio to Part 15, we're here to give voice and find meaning with your radio culture. Radio Survivor has been on the air during the Low Power FM explosion in the United States, which is the largest growth of community radio in our lifetimes. When it is broadcast, when it is time-shifted, when it is streaming or podcasted, we are here for it. Radio Survivor talks to transmission artists, academics, archivists, historians, authors, reporters, and anoraks, which is UK slang for radio nerd, as well as policy experts, because the radio we listen to, even online radio, even community radio, as well as corporate radio, is all governed by the rules and the laws and the bureaucracies, and understanding our radio past, like the 1996 Telecommunications Act, or the ongoing legal saga regarding network neutrality, or even how radio was done in the days before the FCC can give us a view into our radio futures. Each week on Radio Survivor, we share our love for radio and the people who make radio and the people who listen to radio. My name is Eric Klein, and with me are my Radio Survivor co-hosts, Jennifer Waits. Hello, Jennifer. Hi, Paul. Hi, Eric. <laughs> and Paul Reismandel. Hello, Paul. Hey, hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. We should mention that this is a special live episode. Folks who are in Portland, Oregon, have the opportunity to hear us live on X-Ray FM on the radio at 91.1 FM and 107.1 FM, and then as well online at xray.fm. And then folks who listen to our podcast and on our nearly two dozen other affiliate stations are hearing us a little bit later. But this is our first time experimenting with trying to do a live show, not in person in front of a live audience, but uh, live on the radio each of us uh, from our own quarantine positions. <laughs> yeah, but everything on everything in radio that is old is new again because uh, none of us are strangers to live radio. It's just exciting to get back to get back on the air uh, together for the first time uh, as Radio Survivor live on on our local radio station here in Portland, Oregon. Of course, Jennifer is joining us from San Francisco where you have a lot of experience being live on the radio in your life, but not this week. Yeah, not not recently, though. So it's been a while, even though I do have a weekly college radio show, I haven't been on the air live in, I guess, a few months now. So it's kind of exciting and terrifying at the same time to be doing a live show in this manner. I'm used to talking to the three. The three of us are used to talking remotely, but never live <laughs> there's always an opportunity to redo the introduction on on every episode of radio survivor until today yeah, except for the ones we do in front of a live audience where uh you know you could edit that later i guess but the live audience knows knows what you did right or did wrong yeah and yeah, i feel like i feel like i once like forced the live audience to watch me do the intro again if, if not if not in the past someday in the future <laughs> well and and the mechanics are so interesting because we're we're doing this over sort of a video tool so i can actually see paul but not eric and Sorry, so when I'm you did right the intro now. today i said hi to paul first even though eric spoke to me first so you know just adjusting to all those different cues that we have that are ever changing 
All right. Well, enough about the technical fun of today's. <laughs> well, I think it's uh, one last point I want to make, and then we can move on from it. Is, is that none none of the three of us are actually in the X Ray Studios as well? So we are remote from the actual, you know, broadcast studio. In addition to being remote from each other, so many many different uh, spatial geographies have had to but, be but, skipped over. But does the listener experience change? That's the question. Those all those details that we, the radio producer, are obsessed with, especially uh, in the lead up to this very first uh, dry run of this technological miracle. Uh, it's all it's in the top of our minds, but you know, people listening to the radio, as and this is this relates to how radio is being experienced all over the world, not just our little show here, but people listening to the radio don't necessarily, uh, they they. It, it's a rare occurrence that the listener is going to uh, even notice nor care, um, you know, the location of their DJ at that time. But it does change something. I mean, this was the this this was sort of the um, the driving force behind an episode about three weeks ago where we talked with Ken Friedman at WFMU there in New Jersey at the epicenter of of this COVID crisis. You know, he's running a radio station and the the heart of his entire radio station for his entire career has been live DJs in his studio, physically present in the room where radio is made for that audience. And it's a, it's a unique, uh, it's a wonderful paradox. It's not a paradox. It's like it, it, it the, the amazing thing is that Ken Friedman's station WFMU has also always been, uh, one of the first to embrace online broadcasting. So separating that radio station from its physical place in the world and sharing its sound with the audience has always been a part of that radio's uh, driving culture. And yet Ken wants his DJs in the studio and here during the crisis. Um, that's the one thing he had to give up. I think that's the challenge we've been talking about here on Radio Survivor the last few weeks, that specifically college and community radio stations and non-commercial stations are facing because so many of them really do rely on being live much of the time with live DJs and pride themselves often on the fact of their ability to present that. Uh, and, and part of that is because it stands in marked contrast to what's happened in commercial radio over the last uh, 25 years, where we've seen a real dial back from live that it's sort of a rare occasion. If you're listening to commercial music radio, at the very least that you have a live DJ in a studio spinning discs or, or just clicking a mouse to, to play tracks more often they're automated. Uh, they're voice tracked, meaning the, that the voice has been recorded some other time and, and is being inserted, you know, by the automation yeah. system. And sometimes the voice you're hearing is not even, somebody who lives in your community, depending on the station. It may be uh, somebody who is doing this for uh, networks of stations uh, in, a, in a region or around the country, uh, you know, and the idea that you could call in and, and talk to the DJ is almost antiquated in, in commercial radio with right. some exceptions, but remains very true in, in much of community radio and college and radio. Sort of, and sort of a badge of honor, too, I would say, that, right. you know, the stations that, they're stations that really pride themselves on having live DJs 24 hours a day, every single day of the year. And it's, you know, increasingly a small number of stations. But in this particular moment, those stations are having to figure out, oh, wow, um, we can't be live 24-7. So we're seeing a lot. We've talked a lot on the show the past few weeks about 
how how stations are adjusting and figuring out how to have that live experience if you can't necessarily have people live in the studio. Yeah, well, and it's also an incredible time just to contemplate the 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 philosophical nature of of radio being made by people for other people uh, live or even time shifted. I mean, it this this conversation is also echoed by like the the larger conversation that has been happening in radio for a decade about the difference between you know what used to be only Pandora and is now Spotify. Or this idea of of radio existing without a human uh, helping make it, and then what is what is it like when somebody who cares about a group of songs shares that group of songs with you? And and does it matter? Is it different? Is it does it matter if the way they share it is a playlist on Spotify or uh, as a DJ at your local community radio station? I think I think certainly in this moment. You know, I, I DJ at a college radio station and and we do have live DJs who are in the studio now on the air. Uh, we've also started adding some archived shows, too. But when DJs are live in the studio, they're trying to emphasize that fact, because I think during a time of crisis, people it's comforting to to turn on the radio and know that there's a live person there. And, and so I think that that's something that that the station where I am that we're trying to celebrate when it's happening. Mm -hmm. I think you can take a parallel almost to, to a live experience, like live in person experience, you know, because there are certainly, you know, bars or restaurants that will have a live DJ, right. Or have live DJ nights versus having a jukebox or versus having Pandora playing or having radio playing. And because there is this idea that someone mixing music together live, putting aside whether or not maybe they do something more technical, some kind of turntablism or real mixing. Um, but if they're just even just playing songs that they're responding to the tenor of the crowd, they're responding to the energy of the people there and maybe also responding directly to people coming to them and, and asking for requests, you know, and I think, even absent that kind of in-person energy, you know, a live radio DJ can still be responding to the moment in a, in a particular way. And, and that can be phone calls. I've certainly in my time as a, as a live uh, late night radio DJ, a request could send me off on a journey that I hadn't anticipated that I, I want to go down that I want to take that request and put it in some other context. And it changes my whole plan. But there's also moments of, of, of inspiration that can come out of the ether or come out of things that happened moments before you went on the air yeah, that are a little different than what an algorithm uh, can provide. And, and is different than even, you know, a show that was put together a day before. And, and, and well, there's great reasons. There's, there's great benefit to shows that are assembled before. And there's great uh, benefits to be able to listen to something on demand if there's a show you love and there's just no way you can listen to it live to be able to pick it up later is, is a fantastic benefit. Um, but yeah, and yet they're all, it's not always better or worse, but there, there are definitely different flavors to the experience. And the, there's a conversation that takes place, uh, between DJs in the same building with shows adjacent to each other. Right. right? Sometimes. You know, yeah. Here. Yeah. When it's working really well, when it's firing on all cylinders, a radio station has, um, you know, each individual who's playing their song or even doing talk can be in dialogue with the shows before them and after them in a way that uh, that that makes it worthwhile 
to gather together to do these projects, even though we now have the technology to throw it all away and and share sounds uh, in a much more uh, time shifted and isolated and uh, on demand way, which are also delightful. I love my on demand radio listening mm. habits, but um, it's- yeah, I love I love what you were talking about though in the studio because I think for many of us who've been on the air, you might be inspired by a music choice uh, that the DJ had before you to either go in the same vein or to take a complete left turn. And, you know, I talked about, sometimes I'll talk about having like a palate cleanser, which could be something really harsh after something really sweet, even (laughs) depending on how you like to clear your palate. So I, I do love those kind of spontaneous decisions that happen during a live show and, Uh, You know, a long time ago, I had to pre-record a college radio show uh, for a station that liked to have some kind of stored up for um, vacations when students weren't around. And it was the weirdest thing to me at the time to sit kind of staring at a wall, recording a show. And then I was felt like I was second guessing everything I was doing because potentially I could edit it, even though I wasn't planning to. It didn't feel right to me since I was accustomed to always doing a live radio show. I think though yeah. we can talk about the boon of the technology as well though. Uh, if, if we turn back the clock to 15 to 20 years ago when automation was expensive and, and out of the, you know, really n- not within the realm of most uh, grassroots stations. I mean, they often just went off the air, uh, you know, community and college stations. If there was, you know, uh, a gap in, in hosts where maybe someone had an emergency and there just wasn't someone to take over. In many cases, you know, especially maybe in the middle of the night or it could be for for uh, a break in school schedules, station would just turn off the transmitter. And it's permissible. You're allowed to do it up to a certain point. And, and, that, and that happened this year too. There were stations that we're not set up with any sort of technology, yeah. even though technology is available. Some stations did did turn off their transmitter. Yeah, and know, that's which is unfortunate. It's unfortunate because uh, you know, as a listener, right? You, you, if you have a habit of listening to a station and you go and it's not there, there's the question: How many times will you turn back until you quit checking? If you have yeah. no other indicator that it might be there or not, you know, the gaps in service are significant. And I think, you know, 20 years ago when, when the internet was less omnipresent in our lives and there were frankly fewer media channels and, and platforms for us to pay attention to, I think you could count on listeners to come back. But I really wonder, and and, and while I was a college radio advisor, one of my accomplishments was to, to get the to get automation installed in the station and, and the students you know initially were resistant but i i eventually worked with them mostly because they were afraid they didn't want their station to turn into jukebox radio which i understood they didn't want playlists to take over from djs but i said you know but you do have these periods and breaks when you you turn off the transmitter and, and you are arguably losing listeners so you could do this in a way where you won't lose the flavor of what it is you do while maintaining that service. You can basically like what, like a KFJC, what you're doing, Jennifer, you can play archive episodes. You can prepare the programming. It requires that extra work, but you know, it also means now you, you are a true 24 seven year round operation in a way where you, you won't lose that listener who forgets you're there because you were gone for a week or so at a time. And 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 it's not the technology that's evil. It's really how we use it. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And you can use it with care where 
you know, I see a lot of college radio stations in particular that explain how their automation works, that it's, you know, hand curated by their music director or their programming director. So it's not just kind of this randomized, um, in some cases it may be at stations, but there are stations who put a lot of care into it so that when you're tuning in, it, it makes a lot of sense. You know, talking about technology in radio, I mean, I, I do think it's 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 interesting. It's a good moment to really look back on it. Um, you know, we benefit here at Radio Survivor for being able to have our show listened to by people both individually as a podcast and on, you know, more than two dozen radio stations in across North America, including Canada and across and into Ireland. And, and it's, you know, internet technology, which we sort of take for granted now, that makes it possible and, and inexpensive, frankly, for us to do, because it wasn't that long ago in which in order to get, you know, a radio show like ours out to stations, you might have to use satellite technology, which uh, you would probably have to pay for rent the time, lease yeah. the time. I think a lot of shows like ours would have, uh, I, I mean, I worked for one, gosh, that was a long time ago. We, they mailed uh, CDRs yeah. to every affiliate at that, of that show or so. tapes, you know, it was called bicycle right. tapes, you know, yep. and this went on through the two thousands, you know? And so it, it, you know, while I, I sort of use the, the hash year, I say sort of two decades ago. I mean, it certainly went on through the two thousands oh, yeah. because you couldn't always even guarantee, especially in a lot of uh, smaller communities that a station would have uh, sufficient internet that they could download the show in enough time <laughs> with, 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 without too much expense and, and get it on the air in time. Oh, and I have to point out, even before cassettes, you had shows that were delivered on LPs as LPs well. LPs and reels, yeah. Shows, especially like uh, Casey Kasem's American Top 40, was distributed on LPs to a lot of stations because you're it was on hundreds and hundreds of stations. And the little commercial radio station that might be in rural Missouri didn't necessarily have a satellite link up. And didn't yeah. need it. And so because it's a weekly show, they would receive the LPs of the program um, every year. And sometimes if you're a record hunter like me, you will, you're lucky enough to find them at garage sales or in the, in the back bins at a, uh, at a used record sale. Yeah. Remember there was even, there was even college radio programming that was on LP also that featured things like artist interviews mm -hmm. and, you know, the latest release. So you'd hear, you know, a new track and it would be on this LP mixed in with artist interviews. Well, remember so, yeah, it's fun to find those. Our our episode of Radio Survivor, where we interviewed Antarctica's radio producer, we learned that they still have in, in the radio library there in the vinyl library in Antarctica. They have the um, the special uh, I think it was Armed Forces radio programming on vinyl right. mm -hmm. of like you know, Elvis, you know, Christmas. And uh, so all that stuff is, um, it's it's in the rooms somewhere. I know, I would be so excited to be in that library. <laughs> yeah, the Antarctica, I, you know, I, when I put that one into the introduction today, I thought, I, I wondered if we would, um, if we'd end up reminiscing about the, about that episode, because it, it started off in one direction where we're interviewing our guest, but it really, uh, by the time we were done talking to that person who ran the radio station in McMurdo Station, I realized that it wasn't it was a one of a kind radio station isolated on the on the on the loneliest continent. But it also was just another like 
community radio station that had a lot in common with other community radio stations. It, it had a lot in common with college radio, uh, since everyone who's up there uh, is a certain age. You know, there are a lot of people in their 20s making radio at McMurdo Station. Um, and very, you know, hyper local. You only hear it there. It's not on the Internet. Like Paul was talking about technology yeah. changing. You know, that's a station that exists in its own place and time and nowhere else. Yeah, and just really for the for the few residents there uh, in Antarctica uh, and, and they winter over there during during the winter in, in the southern hemisphere where they can't go in and out. Because because of the ice, um, it only only in the case of emergency, really, is anyone permitted to leave. Uh, and you could barely, you know, you really can't in, go outdoors aside for a minute or two unless you're completely prepared. So it, it's sort of you have a, a captive audience, if you will. <laughs> and a dwindling audience, too, because it uh, the population there, I think, shrinks over that period of time, mm, too. Yeah. Some people leave. And, and so, yeah, it's captive. It's... Um, you know exactly who's in your audience. <laughs> we, should, we should call. We should call up that guest again and find out uh, how they feel about uh, social distancing during COVID nineteen and whether or not <gasps> it's a cakewalk for them after after living in Antarctica at McMurdo Station and and doing their job uh, in, right in, in such close quarters and in isolation. And I think we're. I mean, we're reflecting here on radio and technology, in part. I think because radio continues to survive, you know, and it's a topic that, that, that comes and goes here on, on our show where, you know, radio is declared dead every so often. Uh, and yet it, it, it seems to be the opposite therein, especially if you take into account internet radio technologies, whether it's right. podcasting, streaming, et cetera. Well, and, the, that, and, well, and it's just, no, this, it's just process of adaptation, right? It was declared dead in the popular imagination because the, the, the corporate industry, you know, the job market of radio cratered uh, post the 1990s. And it, it, it coincided with the introduction of the internet when the internet was known as this disruptive technology, which was, which was, you know, getting rid of outdated media and bringing in a new world of, of, you know, more responsive technology. And so radio sort of got lumped in, in that moment with other, uh, with other dinosaurs. Well, and, and, and the commercial industry arguably looked at internet radio as, as a distraction or a competitor rather than as an opportunity. Whereas really college radio followed by public radio and community radio looked at internet radio as an opportunity as a way to grow listeners or better serve them rather than as something which would siphon them away from, from their very valuable terrestrial air feeds. Well, yeah. And college students, you know, are always ahead of most people as far as technology. And, and so they were exploring how to use the internet, you know, before most commercial radio stations were. So it, it was probably also done in a spirit of fun and exploration versus, you know, perhaps the commercial radio industry was my, perhaps dragged into yeah. the internet. <laughs> very much so. Very much so. And I, I you know, at this moment, I, I think I, I'd like to mention that uh, I just served on a, on an online panel for an online conference uh, for world audio day which was declared as, uh, as April 21st. And, um, I got to serve with, uh, one of our past guests and I hope we have a chance to have him back on cause he's delightful. Um, Andrew Bottomley, who's a professor of communication at, uh, SUNY Oneonta in, in New York state, uh, where we, it was all about 
internet radio history. It was put together by Dom Robinson, who is a um, who is a journalist and himself a streaming media technologist in the UK. And we are also joined by Rob Glazer, who is the founder of Real Networks, which made real audio, uh, the technology that really arguably birthed internet radio, internet audio into the mainstream back in the, in the early nineties. Uh, it was fantastic to have him on there along with, uh, Dane Streeter, who also is in charge of running, uh, the technology for, uh, dozens and dozens of internet radio stations in, in the UK. And, and we did, you know, we got onto a little bit of this, of, of this split here and, 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 and between commercial radio in the United States, at the very least, things were different in the UK. Um, and, and community and college and, and public radio uh, here and how, you know, the non-commercial end of it embraced internet radio as a, as an opportunity, especially yeah. given the fact that, you know, many college and community stations in particular have relatively small footprints. They don't have a lot of power. Uh, I think folks who are big fans of community and college radio often could talk about how, especially if they've been listening a long time, there were times when there were places they could drive their car to go listen to. I, I remember I have a lot of friends who grew up in the Chicago suburbs, uh, in the North and Northwest suburbs, uh, who told me that in high school, you know, they would drive their car to the top of uh, particular parking garages so that they could get in WNUR, which is the station in Evanston uh, at Northwestern University, so they could hear the punk show in particular, because there was no other punk show to be found maybe in, in, in the 90s at that time. Um, you know, but they they would get together in a car and try to turn on the speakers and just so they could listen to the show called Fast and Loud. And internet radio now makes that an anachronism mostly uh, for most stations, um, you know, but because it allows them to, to bypass those geographic uh, limitations. So we've, we've talked about on this show now a handful of times and on our program in general, Radio Survivor, about how non-commercial radio and college radio really led the way onto the internet when that technology became available. And it, to me, it seems like a moment where it's clear that the reason why commercial radio uh, didn't jump in and obviously there's a there's a there's the thousand stories to tell about this moment in history but it's it's about the motivation for making the radio and if you're making radio uh because you air commercials and turn a profit why would you why would you go out into this untested waters to take risks right to make radio on the internet but if you make radio because you love connecting with people and you love sharing your ideas and the sounds that you care about then why wouldn't you Put your radio on the internet. Of course you would. So college radio was there first, and WFMU was there first. We, on Radio Survivor, as Jennifer likes to uh, remind us, we never say that any particular station or individual <laughs> was the first, because anybody you can always dig out another historical fact from the past. But we know that a number of specific colleges. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. WXYC, UNC. Um, Chapel Hill and Rec at Georgia Tech, those I think are pretty well established as some of the first, I, oh, what is the terminology? I guess simultaneous, they, they were the first radio stations to simulcast on the internet, yeah. I think is the correct. Yeah, I think that's time. right. Instead of having maybe a discrete program, having some entirely different program that it was this duplicate of their Airstream. And wasn't, didn't you talk to Andrew Bottomley on episode number 100 and 
and 67 of Radio Survivor, I believe, about uh, when when something similar happened with the uh, the first time uh, anything was streamed over the internet. Wasn't that, that? Yeah, yeah, we definitely talked about that with Andrew, um, and and he alluded to that actually in the. I I listened to the panel that Paul was on with Andrew this week, and and Andrew was uh, well, like us. Andrew was very um, careful to not make first claims as well mm. because um, anybody who is a good researcher knows that of the nuance in making those types of claims. And anyone who wants to hear this panel, by the way, it's been recorded. We'll have a link in our show notes. Go to radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. Look for this episode and we'll have a link so you can go in and listen to it. Yeah. So I guess returning to to this idea of the relationship between internet radio and and low power FM community stations and and low powered stations like like X-Ray, you know, I, the fact that they sort of came up together is really important and symbiotic. You know, a, a lost history to some extent of community and, and college and high school radio in the U.S. is that beginning in the late 1940s through to the late 1970s, there were low-powered FM stations. Uh, they were called Class D and they, they actually had lower power than what low-power FM stations have now. They ran at 10 watts of power. Yeah, and I want to jump in just to let listeners know who aren't radio nerds like us that what that the low power means that it's smaller, but it also means that it's an opportunity for different people to get on the it's ex- air. It's inexpensive. I mean, basically, you know, it, it costs a lot less money to, to operate and run uh, such a station. And because of the low power, you can have more of them in a community, uh, which again, allows more different folks to get on the air. And these stations were around and, and principally they were, they were often run by community colleges, colleges and high schools. And they got put out of business in 1978. And one of the arguments that was used, because this happened at the level of the Federal Communications Commission, right, the, the, the body of the U.S. government that oversees their radio airways, and part of the logic was that these stations were, too, were basically too small to be useful. And on top of that, um, you know, they, would be run, they were run amateurishly, was arguments that were put forward, you know, and and the programming uh, was didn't what didn't stand out, and the argument that was made, uh, and one of the 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 parties that made this argument to the FCC at the time was National Public Radio. The argument was, well, you know, what would be better is if we had fewer higher powered public radio stations that could provide public service. Because having all these little tiny high school and college stations just waters things down. And in particular, they said, it waters down the grant making, right? So if we're all competing for the same grants to go to, to non-commercial radio, um, we're not maximizing the public service. Public service would be maximized basically by, by non-commercial consolidation. And the FCDC found, found an argument persuasive in 1978, phased out low-power radio phased out these little 10-watt stations. And basically, they were given an option. They were told, okay, you can stay on the air at your 10-watt station, but you will be considered a secondary service. So if somebody else wants to come by and watch your frequency or wants a frequency nearby, that would mean that you can't broadcast, you lose. Um, 
They said, though, if you want to upgrade, if it's possible, we'll give you the opportunity now to upgrade and to increase your power uh, to more than 100 watts or even more if you can. But many stations, an untold number went off the air, uh, you know, over the course of years, because sometimes it would take years before another station came along and said, hey, we want your frequency and we want to do it with 1,000 watts. Um, but a lot was lost in there. And it wasn't until uh, 2000, right, so 22 years later, that the FCC turned around and created a new low-power service. But the one really critical difference, I think, between 2000 and 1978 is that um, low wattage is less of a constraint now because internet radio existed and exists in the, in the 2000s. Um, you know, your low-power FM station, a 10-watt station, and by the way, X-Ray FM, uh, where we're doing our live episode right now, it is actually one of these grandfathered in class D 10 watt licenses uh, at 91.1 FM. So it is a license that's existed in the Portland community for decades, uh, in decades prior to 1978 even. Yeah, yeah it's kind of a nice backstory because it was Reed College had the license for this class D station. And it came to the point where they were having a real struggle being able to have their broadcast heard. Uh, because a lot of these Class Ds that continue to exist have faced interference from other stations. And so they gave their, they actually turned their license back to the FCC. And then a group, Common Frequency, noticed this and asked Reed, hey, would you consider changing your mind and maybe getting that license back and then donating it to us? Because we think we can find a use for it. And when, what, uh, generally speaking, not specifically, what, what year was this? Oh, I don't have the timeline at hand. It was roughly um, around 2012, 2013. It really wasn't that long ago. Very, this is recent radio This is really re recent radio history. Yeah. And I think it's important to note that I think what, what X-Ray has been able to do is to use that as a firm foundation, right, to build this community service, which is what so many low-power community stations have done. I think people, you know, yes, you can listen to X-Ray at 91.1 FM and luckily as well on another frequency because they have a translator that they're able to feed at 107.1 FM. But I think for many people, it's, it's an internet radio station. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and, and X-ray FM, X-ray dot FM is, is an important aspect of the station's branding. And I think that's true for so many uh, low powered and community stations these days. And it's a, it's a real advantage, right? That, that just did not exist in 1978, where if it was a 10 watt station, right. you know, and, and at this point at Reed college, not too far off campus, it was pretty difficult to get. And now, well, you can listen to to the same exact frequency and it was effectively the same station on the dial anywhere in the world. Yeah. And, and I want to, and I think I that's, that's a really important sort of co-mingling and, 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 and is really a part of reason why low power FM turned into a success story in the 21st century when it was sort of, uh, really looked down upon by the broadcast industry and relatively embattled at, at the close of the 1970s. I just want to say one more thing that I happen to know about this very special history just off the top of my head uh, and also put a caveat in there that we really owe uh, 
a deeper dive. Someday, we'd love to get more of these details uh, on the record here on Radio Survivor about this very special station, X-Ray FM, and, and its frequencies and where it's been. And we'd love to we'd love to do that for every station <laughs> if you're if you're listening. But to it us. is an interesting story that kind of stands yeah. out as a, but, as a and, license that was going to go away and and, and was the, rescued and and really oh, turned into yeah. this this incredibly strong community media platform. Yep. Exactly. Yep. That's why. It, that's why it pains me whenever licenses are returned to the yeah. FCC because often there are creative, there are other creative ideas. Other people may be able to yeah. help you find a creative use for that signal rather and than giving it up. But the other thing I wanted to mention about the history of the frequency is that when the Reed College station was on the air and vibrant, uh, it gave voice to a student DJ named who went on the air as Dr. Demento. And I need to know. Uh, I need to read the book about Dr. Demento, but all what I do know about Dr. Demento is that I listened to his syndicated radio program when I was a child in the eighties in Los Angeles. And it was the, uh, it was, it was everything. I love that show. And it's a, it was comedy songs, uh, played, uh, in a, in, you know, in a professional and syndicated manner. And it's also historically, uh, important because it is, uh, verifiably, it's a fact that Dr. Demento's radio program is why we now have Weird Al Yankovic's career as a... Uh, as Who also a, got his start in college radio yeah, that, that at um, Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. Yeah, but yeah, and Weird Al Yankovic would not exist for these, uh, if not for these two college radio opportunities to uh, to develop his voice and to share his art and uh, read was the, was the radio station where Dr. Demento got his start and now X-Ray in Portland, Oregon, is is using that frequency because Common Frequency, the the do-gooder nonprofit, made sure to preserve uh, preserve these these airwaves for 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 the community use. Um, not to mention, deep breath, just the people who's who put in all of the work to make sure that X-ray could get built from the ground up to mm -hmm. hold the space. You know, it, it's it's an enormous community effort. It's a lift that was done by by so many individuals i can't name them i haven't even met them but i do know that they put in work uh, for years to build this station and, and i can't tell you the whole history of x-ray but it it did make it onto my radio station tour series and back in 2015 i was lucky to be able to visit x-ray and um i'm i'm smiling because uh some of the things we spotted there made it into an article that my daughter wrote for me about weird things spotted at radio stations. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. And at X-Ray, we found people with matching tattoos. Okay. So we took photos of them. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, because there's a, there was an impromptu mural on the wall that was in one of these incredible rooms where X-Ray is located. And that, yes, that, it's like that a cat on fire. Cat on fire. I remember that cat on fire. And, and everyone busted out their, you know, appendages to show us their matching tattoos when we were there. We should mention that this cat on fire was fierce and proud of its fire. Uh, not, not, uh, not scared of being uh, alive. Oh, yes. Um, no, it was a very um, triumphant And uh, we should image. say that. The, the voice that you just heard is Jennifer Waits of Radio Survivor. Uh, we're also here with Paul Reismandel. I'm Eric Klein. And Jennifer is famous around these parts for being um, not just a radio tourist, not just someone who visits radio stations um, be, you know, and, and snaps a few photos uh, while they're on vacation. But Jennifer, you, you visit hundreds 
of radio stations uh, because each one, well, what do you, you what? Oh. <laughs> you know, you, I, I, let's, let's put it this way. Let's make this the question. You can't visit a radio station right now during the lockdown crisis. What do you miss? about radio station visits what was your favorite part i know i'm trying to figure i'm trying to figure that out in my head like can my radio station tours continue uh yeah what do i miss you know the the inspiration i guess i miss what everybody misses you know actually seeing people in person you know i could probably replicate it by having somebody bring a video camera through a radio station and then i could see all the quirky stuff and maybe interview folks but um yeah, the the energy of of being in a place that is um, a source for community, both on and off the air. That that's what I get every time I visit a radio station, and you know, sort of witnessing. Yeah, witnessing all the weird stuff, but but the personalities, uh, the people who often put the majority of their life into this radio station. That's often what you see in high school, college and community radio, people who are doing it for the love of producing interesting content for their community. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, if you would like to check out each individual write-up that Jennifer has, has uh, painstakingly and lovingly put into words and photos, uh, those are all online at radiosurvivor.com. Uh, it's always uh, putting Jennifer on the spot to ask what what number we are at because uh, because it's an ongoing, never ending uh, process of. I know, know and I and I feel so behind because I haven't yeah. been on a tour in a while. But yeah, I mean, I think it's like approaching two hundred, approaching two hundred radio stations visited around the world, primarily in the United States, and and we've also uh, brought you the sounds of those radio station visits here on radiosurvivor.com. I mean, I'm trying to think of one of the things I have learned because of these visits that you shared with us, Jennifer. And I think part of it's just that like, um, uh, yeah, it's it's actually difficult for me to, to synthesize that right now, but it, it, it does remind me, I think, well, uh, one of the nice things is that here, we here in Radioland, we tend to focus on our station and our, the experiences we've had in the stations where we've worked. And right. it is a very special uh, treat to get to know another station outside of that uh, very tiny universe where, you know, one of the things that has come up on Radio Survivor more than twice is this notion that each station thinks that its history is unique and one of a kind. Most Most community radio stations will lay claim to being like the greatest the one that has accomplished this one radio goal in the or world. We're like the only, we're the only college radio station that, you know, still plays unusual stuff, you know, kind of thing. I feel like I hear that all the time. And it's not necessarily their fault that they feel that way because in their community, in their city, in their listening area, that is, that is a hundred percent real. That is the truth. Right. And one of the things that we get to do on radio survivor is sort of try to wrap our arms around all of those individual stories because they form a collective and these stations are um, are a part of a world of stations, a constellation of radio stations that have a lot in common and uh, Radio Survivor gets gets the opportunity to, to sort of share that and clarify that for ourselves as well as for our listeners. Yeah, I mean, I like to show the diversity and, you know, not only show those commonalities, but also break stereotypes, you know, because we all have stereotypical ideas of 
what a college radio station is. And there are many college radio stations that don't fit that stereotype. So I, I like to visit a wide variety of stations to show that maybe the type of station I've experienced as a participant, that's not the only type of station out there. And Jennifer, these stations are, the vast majority of them are in the United States, correct? That you've visited? Yes, I've been to a few in Ireland. You've been to a few in Ireland. And I, and I just want to point out for perspective here that it is arguable there's no other country in the world where somebody could have toured 200 community and college radio stations. Interesting. Uh, you know, so I'll say this <laughs> because I, I, I say it's arguable because I, I could mm-hmm. get caught out on this, but you know, this is not a phenomenon that is, uh, that is as nearly as, as uh, dense per capita in other countries that are as populous as the United States. So only India really, um, in, in terms of countries of a similar size, have uh, much of a, a community radio or college radio infrastructure, and so India might might be able to might and because I'm, I'm not doing my research right now, yeah. and I'm going out and making large proclamations. But putting that aside, well, certainly, well, uh, otherwise, it, it, it you really can't find another nation where you could do that. Well, and and historically, there are a lot of places where college radio is much more recent than it is in the United States. Yes. And and same with community radio. Yeah. And Jennifer, when did college radio start in the United States? Generally, well, some generally speaking, some of the first licensed stations were in the 1920s yeah. and there were radio experiments happening, you know, starting in the late 1800s on college campuses. And, and then in, in other countries as well, there were colleges doing things on radio in the 1920s. But broadcast got consolidated typically under state control, right? Un, 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 under state broadcasting in, in, in many, especially uh, especially European nations and Western nations, but in other nations as well, um, you know, which, you know, had monopolies well into the 70s often before uh, a community or college or commercial kind of broadcasting infrastructure uh, was permitted to be built up. And, I, and the reason I, I made, I, I wanted to point this out to folks, right? Because of the fact that you pointed out, Eric, that, you know, we, for those of us who are into radio and are, are and, and have favorite stations or are, you know, work at a station, volunteer with a station, you know, our world tends to be very caught up into that little world. And, and, and I want to point out that, that we're very lucky here in the United States to really have as many of these stations as we do. And that we can go from, from city to city, whether from, right. from uh, Portland to Seattle to San Francisco to Los Angeles, down the west, up and down the West Coast to Chicago to New York, where now, because of the growth of low-power FM radio since uh, the year 2013, we now have multiple community radio stations in different cities, which also allows them to, 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 to provide a more, a greater diversity of programming, right. maybe to focus on some things while another station focuses on other things. And I, 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 while celebrating radio, I also want to urge listeners in general to wherever you're listening to us, not to take this for granted. This right, is special. You use the, <laughs> the word lucky Paul, but what you also, what you really mean is that, so many people put in so much hard work. It is work hard one. Luck. Every every it, the, the existence of the ability to have the stations, the ability to have the license was hard work that people put in over the course 
of 20 years of working yeah, with the keep- FCC and lobbying the FCC and Congress. And then you have the untold person hours that were put in in cities around the country and towns and, and little burgs where people then had to actually build the stations, build studios, acquire equipment, do do all of the hard work it takes to to get the station on the air and then do it. Um, yeah, we spoke with someone who said she literally there was literally blood in the walls from yeah. her work it's on incredible. Um, when, when you try to think Chirp about radio it, in Chicago, yeah. It's actually incredible it all exists. After they build the station and get it on the air, then they make radio for the listener every day, every hour, every minute. And then it's important to note that the final the final piece of that incredible luck that we have so much great radio in the United States that we can actually feel a kind of national exceptionalism, which is uh, unique. And I'm not used to being proud <laughs> of uh, being a citizen of the United States, but so much great radio. And it's also all there because the people who listen to it uh, give to these stations, keep these stations on the radio. They they don't, it's a, it's a very unique relationship in, in our country because you know we don't have to we don't have to give to libraries to keep our libraries uh functioning yeah depends on where you live well yeah good point uh but you know uh, and this is a different show like if there could be a tax funded radio station for the community a non well i mean and it exists it it exists in new zealand it exists in other countries really where when you know when i when i traveled to new zealand earlier this year and i and i talked with uh the folks at uh, wellington access radio and their their eyes went wide when i said no wait no community radio as a whole in the united states is not government funded by and large. There's little grants here yeah. and there, but and 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 I also said, you know, and most of our public stations also receive significant listener donations as well. And you know, I want to circle up on this point because, and uh, you know, I want to celebrate the fact that we have this robust uh, community college university radio station infrastructure. But I, I can't do so without noting that a lot of it exists in near opposition to a lot of, to the commercial radio sphere, uh, much of which no longer serves communities very well. Um, there are exceptions of course, but in a lot of ways, um, you know, so much of this was a response to consolidation and a response to, 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 you know, really this, uh, the combination of stations uh, of commercial stations, uh, that squeezed out any sort of local voice or local presence and, and, you know, really treated stations like real estate to be bought and sold and combined, uh, to squeeze every last penny out of rather than as robust, uh, community cultural institutions. And so in some ways, you know, Community radio is 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 a kind of a is the grass coming up through the pavement, right? <laughs> Surviving through and sprouting, but we we have to take care, right? And 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 that's why I want people to appreciate it because I, and why I say we should not should not take it for granted because it, it is it was the existence of these stations is hard won on many levels and is continues to be hard won every year thereafter yeah. right to, to maintain it and to not allow uh some level of of indifference or or shall we say benign neglect that, that yeah. taking for granted let them uh slip away from us and and lose a resource that we will later wish we had yeah i mean so you're listening to radio survivor in case you've just joined us and we celebrate radio for all of these reasons because uh because it is hard won because it is unique 
and also because it has a 100-year history that isn't widely acknowledged or known. College radio on the air 100 years ago, um, those stories are still out there. We don't believe that they're totally lost. We believe that maybe in the broadcast years to come, we might be able to tell those stories of these uh, college radio DJs in the 1920s, women and men who made the first radio in the United States. Uh, we're very proud to do this work. Thank you. My name is Eric Klein. Uh, Jennifer Waits is here as well. And Paul Reismandel. And so that's why, I mean, I also, I'd like to celebrate some good news <laughs> that Jennifer can bring us here from the world of college radio. And, and, and this includes stations that are, are both uh, on broadcast and online because online college radio is truly legit and students make real radio there and they have real listeners there. Yeah. I, I think um, during this time of shelter in place and pandemic there's a lot of creativity going on in college radio with stations figuring out kind of new and different ways to broadcast. Um, and then I was pleasantly surprised to hear about a station that actually relaunched amid all of this. So they had been wow. spending months preparing to relaunch their online stream. And this is at Rose Holman Institute of Technology in Terre Haute, Indiana, so they relaunched WMHDRadio.org 2.0 on April 16th. And, wow. and so they did a, a digital show hmm. featuring students and alum, alumni picking music. So I think it was around like between a dozen and 20 students participate in this digital show that, can also, that, that they played um, a couple of different times online and it's been archived so that people can check in again. So they were still able to have this celebratory moment and they put all this work into rebuilding their website. And uh, you, when you say and, rebuild uh, and get back online, what, what did that did that institution have a radio station that they lost? They, no, they did. They, so they had a radio station, but they, they were doing a bunch of work behind the scenes to improve the stream, ah, the stream. and the whole infrastructure. So... They they didn't want that all to fall by the wayside, even though, you know, the campus uh, students had to leave campus and things had to shut down. But they still wanted to, you know, after the dust settled a little bit, have the celebratory digital party. So I, I feel like I'm hearing more and more of these stories right now where uh, some stations that had left the airwaves are now figuring out how to broadcast again, you know, by putting up archive shows. Uh, so there's, there's this return, I think at the very beginning of the COVID-19 shutdowns in the United States, I was, I was getting very depressed hearing kind of on a daily basis about different stations that were going off the air, you know, temporarily. So I think, you know, through persistence and creativity, there are stations that are coming back or stations that are just continuing with their projects and relaunching, like at Rose Holman Institute of Technology. And Jennifer, there's also, um, you know, you've mentioned the College Radio News Network, which which is, a, that's a new thing, right? There's now a, a sort of a well, news network for college radio? New-ish. New-ish, um, yeah. I mean, it's not it's not been around as long as CNN. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of taking a new form um, during the pandemic. So the College Radio News Network was 
conceived by Annabella Poland, and she's the general manager at WMSC at Montclair State University in New Jersey. And so she had created this infrastructure for radio stations to share material before the pandemic. So think about things like uh, the College Radio Foundation does an annual vinyl thon. And so they use this network to share pre-produced material that other stations could run or news programs that maybe might be appropriate for other stations to run. And so uh, they're expanding it a bit in these times so that more and more stations can participate and share content. And some of it is coronavirus related. So maybe you have an expert interview that somebody at your station did. You throw it up on this shared space that the College Radio News Network has and other college radio stations can then use that piece over their airwaves. So it's it's an idea, you know, if we look historically at college radio, there there has been content sharing, you know, since the very beginning. And so this is just kind of the next iteration of that, making a formal structure for stations to share the good work that they're doing across other radio stations. And, and to kind of tie it up with where we started our conversation, right, because they don't have to send around tapes or link up on a satellite network, they can share it online. You know, they're, they're making the most of the online technology to help, uh, you know, really to, to put their resources together, right? And to, exactly. And, and, to, and to make more uh, from, from what they have in front of them, you know, and, and I think that really does help to tie up here as, as we close out, uh, th- this edition of, of radio survivor. Thank you all for spending an hour with us. Uh, you can learn more at our website, radiosurvivor.com. You can see our show notes, radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. This is a listener and reader supported enterprise to learn more about that go to radiosurvivor.com slash support. And we'd love to hear from you. If you have any response any comments anything you heard today drop us a line podcast at radiosurvivor.com we, we answer just about everybody so really if you have thoughts or, or suggestions or ideas we we love to hear from you and you can listen to the show on the radio and you may be listening to the on the radio right now or as a podcast you go to radiosurvivor.com slash podcast or you can use stitcher spotify pandora apple podcast pretty much if there's a podcast app out there you can find and listen to Radio Survivor. So on behalf of Eric Klein and Jennifer Waits and myself, Paul Reesmano, thanks for tuning in.